Well, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Jude, so if you will, please join me in the book of Jude. Like Phil said, find your last, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, then go one book over and you'll find the book of Jude. It's just one, you know, it's one chapter, it's easily skipped over. I pray it's been a fruitful study so far. As you go there, I, I just want to tell you a little bit of a story. It's a true story. In 1977, 1,200 people filled a ballroom at the Beverly Hills Supper Club in Cincinnati, Ohio. They were there for a night of laughter, entertainment. Everyone got dressed up. Dinner was lavish. Tickets were expensive. And they were there having a wonderful time, but little did they know, at another part of the building, a fire broke out. And, you know, it was 1977. There were no fire detectors at this particular hotel, no fire uh, sprinklers in the hotel, and the fire department was a long ways from coming. And so eventually, a, a young man, a waiter, actually not even a waiter, an assistant waiter, ran into the ballroom, got on stage, interrupted the show, and announced that there was a fire in another part of the building and everyone needed to evacuate. He, he pointed out the various ways that they could evacuate and encouraged them to do so, to do so swiftly. No one listened. Now, now the, to, to be fair, maybe they thought, this, this kid's not credible. Or maybe they thought, this is part of the act. Or maybe they just thought, well, it, it's at a far part of the hotel so we'll probably be okay. Let, let's, let's keep the fun going. But whatever the reason was, they, they didn't start to panic until f- smoke started filling the room, and then they fled to safety. And yet, when all was said and done, 165 lives were lost in that fire. Now, this story told by a popular podcast uh, uh, kind of news anchor guy, uh, Tim Horford, he, he tells the story as a cautionary tale. And, and the, the, the tale, the, the theme, the, the thing we're to learn from this is that, that we as humans often actually have a, uh, a bad tendency to, to not rightly understand threats. Now, there are lots of cautionary tales. His entire podcast is called Cautionary Tales, and so he gives one after the other because cautionary tales are really helpful. What a cautionary tale is, a cautionary tale seeks to help us gain wisdom by understanding past folly. Think of the boy who cried wolf. That's a cautionary tale. Or think of Chicken Little, a cautionary tale. We we tell these to our children because we want to grow them up to be wise by helping them understand historic foolishness. Well, today we have a cautionary tale. That's what this section of the book of Jude is all about. It's a cautionary tale. Jude, like we've said all along, is the half-brother of Jesus. And he writes this letter to Christians for the purpose to encourage them to contend for the Christian faith. Especially in light of false teachers that were in their midst. And so Jude writes that that one way they contend for the faith is by warning them of the threat of false teachers that are wreaking havoc 
in these various Christian churches that Jude writes to. Now, the, the big idea is basically this, and it's going to be behind me on the screen. The big idea in verses 11 through 16 is that God protects his people from unfaithful teachers through two things, through warning and the reality of judgment, reminding them of the reality of judgment. Now, we're going to break this text down in three points, right? And I'm going to do it alliteratively. There's woe, there's warning, and there's writing on the wall, right? It took me like an hour to, to do that, okay? So you're welcome, all right? So, so we're going to go through it that way. So there's woe to the unfaithful, there's warning about the characteristics of the unfaithful, and then there's writing on the wall about the judgment that will come upon the unfaithful. Woe, warning, and the writing on the wall. So first, let's, let's, let's look at the first. The, the woe that comes upon the unfaithful. Go, go back to verse 11. That, that first word, woe. Now, when you see this, woe is not like the, the, the feeling you get or the word you might even express when you're at the fair in Puyallup riding a roller coaster. Right? It's not that, that mixture of fear and excitement. Well, in the Bible is a pronouncement of judgment. And it's pretty common in the Old Testament. I'll just point out one in Hosea chapter 7, verse 13. You've got false teachers and, and false prophets who are leading God's people astray. And so woe is pronounced on them in Hosea chapter 7. Woe to them, we read in verse 13. Because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. Now we see this in the Old Testament that woe comes upon false teachers, false prophets. But actually it's, it's in the New Testament too. The biggest concentration is actually in the Gospels on the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew 23. And there Jesus you know, seven times pronounces woe on various teachers whom he calls over and over again hypocrites. Well, Jude, in this sort of long line of prophetic and divine uh, kind of judgments of, of, of pronouncing woe on various false teachers, he's just in this long line of, of, of prophets and teachers who are pronouncing woe on false teachers. And so basically, Jude is saying that, that judgment is coming on the false teachers that are affecting these various Christian churches. Now, why is woe coming upon them? Well, Jude tells us there in verse 11. He says, Woe is coming because they walked in the way of Cain, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Three examples. Three Old Testament character examples. Now, if you remember from last week, Jude did this before. Only he didn't use three historic character examples. He used three historic events to illustrate his point. And so Jude is going to do this again. Jude loves threes. He was a Baptist pastor, I think. Okay? So he gives three character examples from the Old Testament, basically saying that, that, that these teachers are like them. They are types. These teachers are types of unfaithful Old Testament characters. 
So let's look at them. The first one listed, Cain. Now, you might remember Cain. Genesis chapter 4 details the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to God. God preferred Abel's offering to Cain, and Cain is jealous. He's envious. He's angry. God speaks to him and says, Cain, you got to calm down. Anger is crouching at your door. I'll accept yours if, if, if you do it the right way, right? God talks to him, tries to calm him down, but, but Cain won't have it. And so Cain eventually, in his jealousy and his fit of rage, he kills his brother Abel. And so Jude is basically saying that, that Cain is sort of a type. He, he's an example of these teachers that he's confronting. Cain was cynical. He was materialistic. He was greedy. He was envious. He ultimately disobeyed God. He despised God. He didn't listen to God. And he murdered his brother. And in like fashion, these teachers, they're just like Cain. That's the... First kind of character example that he uses to illustrate his point. But the second is maybe a little bit more cryptic. It's a story of the prophet in Numbers 22 through 24, the prophet Balaam. Balaam's pretty interesting. If you remember Balaam, and you can read this story later in Numbers 22 through 24, but, but Balaam basically is a prophet for hire. And so the king of Moab kind of hires Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel. And basically, he's like, oh, I'm obliged to do that. I'll, I'll totally do that. If you pay me enough, if you grease my pockets enough. And so Balaam, you know, does that only right before he's about to pronounce a curse upon Israel. God flips it, and it becomes a blessing. Balaam keeps blessing them. Now, now don't get it kind of twisted here. Balaam's not a hero, Balaam's not the good guy. Later on in chapter 31, we find out that actually Balaam enticed Israel away from worship. That he enticed them into idolatry. Balaam's not the good guy here. Now, if you're wondering, how was it that later on Balaam was able to entice Israel to idolatry, to worship other gods? Well, we, we actually don't know. We have no idea. We, we, could, we could speculate. That might be fun, but but we don't know. But in our text, in Jude, we're told why he entices Israel into idolatry. It says so right there in verse 11. For his own gain. For his own gain. It was all about the Benjamins for Balaam. Right? So in Jude's day, there were teachers who basically were, were teaching and they were they were out for their own financial gain. Now, this is an old game, but it's also a contemporary game. Prophets, teachers, gurus, capitalizing on pain for gain. I, I'm terrible when I'm sick. All right? I, I get a tiny cold, and I start praying for Christ's return. My, my poor wife. Okay, if you came to me, and said, take this tea, or take this medicine, and all your symptoms will go away. I mean, anything short of sin, I would try it. Well, that's what often prophets, teachers, 
spiritual gurus, they'll come, they'll, they'll kind of uh, talk about physical pain, an emotional pain, a social pain, and promise for a little bit of their financial gain, they can help. They'll take away our pain for their, all we have to do is just give them a little bit of financial gain. It's an old game. As old as Balaam. A sort of get-rich scheme through spiritual deception. And Jude's reminding these Christians that just as Balaam seduced people into idolatry through financial gain, so these teachers were doing that very thing. And then lastly, the last example there in verse 11 is Korah. Reread of that story in number 16. Now, Korah, he incited this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Korah and 250 Israelites came and they opposed Moses and Aaron. They basically were opposing their authority. It was sort of a power grab. And basically they said, Moses, what gives you the right to lead? Aaron, what gives you the right to lead? And because of this rebellion, the earth swallowed them up. And so Jude uses the story of Korah and and that character, that that historic person, and says, these teachers in our days, they're just like Korah. They are opposing teachers. They don't submit. They're anti-authority. They're setting themselves against various teachers in the churches. So we have Cain, we have Balaam, we have Korah, and they're all pictures, and they're all examples of unfaithfulness. Cain was unfaithful in his love. Balaam was unfaithful in his greed. And Korah was unfaithful in his submission to those leaders in which God had given him. Now, all three were slightly unfaithful in different ways, but all of them were unfaithful. All of them were pictures of unfaithfulness, and each of them were judged. Cain was banished. Balaam was rebuked by a donkey. Korah and his rebellion were swallowed up by the earth. And so Jude's point is pretty clear. Unfaithfulness in his days will be judged just like they were in those days. Woe has been pronounced upon them. And then just just look at the verbs I want to point out. Look at the verbs in verse 11. They walked, then they abandoned, then they perished. The, the, the last verb is, is sort of the, the, the climactic uh, end of this all, right? Woe eventually leads to ruin. There's an escalating effect here. Now, Jude had a very particular problem. And he was encouraging Christians to contend for the faith against these false teachers. R- reminding them that, that those false teachers... They're going to be judged. And so in like fashion, this is a cautionary tale. That, that woe has been announced on these teachers. Judgment is coming upon the unfaithful. But I think therein lies the problem. Because we, we, we might be not false teachers in that sense. We might not be unfaithful by promoting doctrine in order to financially gain from it. But all of us struggle with unfaithfulness. 
in some ways, th- those three historic men are, are pretty good kind of examples, illustrations of our own personal unfaithfulness. So what do we do about that? You know, the, the sins of Cain and Balaam and Korah, they're in all of our hearts. Where's the hope for the unfaithful? Well, I mentioned earlier that Jesus pronounced woe on religious leaders in his days. Well, it was those same religious leaders who eventually seized Jesus, arrested Jesus, and put him on a cross and murdered Jesus. But but as Jesus was hanging on a cross, an unfaithful criminal who was hanging next to him turned to him. Confessed that he was, in fact, unfaithful and said, Jesus, will you remember me? And at that moment, Jesus, he doesn't pronounce woe on that man. He pronounces something else. He pronounces mercy, forgiveness, pardon. The woe that should have come upon this man, Jesus says, instead, I'm going to give you mercy instead. Now, how could he do that? Well, in the Christian gospel, there's a twist, a wonderful twist. And the twist is that God would ultimately proclaim woe on the faithful one in order to pardon unfaithful people. That's the twist of the Christian gospel. That woe would come on the faithful one to pardon unfaithful men and women. That's the good news of the gospel. That woe is not the final word. That there's time to repent and turn to Jesus. Well, that's the woe. Next, let's look at this warning. Jude warns about the characteristics of of these unfaithful. And, And notice, starting in verse 12, that there's six metaphors, images, they're evocative, they're, they're, they're descriptive, they're, they're really powerful. All right, let's just kind of go through each of them. So the first there in verse 12 says that these, these teachers are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast without, with you without fear. Now, um, if I was a ship captain, which I'm not, but, but imagine for a second, one of the things that I ought to be afraid of would be hidden rocks, hidden reefs, things I couldn't see. Because if I were to hit them, it could rip open the bottom of the, my ship and I would sink. And so by, by, by saying this, Jude is saying that these teachers, they're like hidden reefs. They're hidden and they're going to devour you if you're not careful. He also mentions there these love feasts, which is a reference to communion. And so in the early church, people would have communion, but then they'd attach a a big sort of potluck, a big fellowship meal to communion. And so he's saying that those teachers, they're sitting there, they're chopping it up, they're having a good time, they're eating the potluck food. All along, they're like rocks hidden, ready to devour you. They're just sitting there at the communion table, And you don't even see them. They're hidden. They're deceptive. 
just like a rock. The the second characteristic there in verse 12, it says that they are shepherds feeding only themselves. Now, this is an allusion to an Old Testament text. The Old Testament text is Ezekiel chapter 34. And there, Ezekiel pronounces woe and judgment on teachers, on the shepherds of Israel, because they only feed themselves. Now, they should be feeding others. They should be providing for others, but they're not doing it. And so Jude's point is pretty simple. These teachers, they're just out for themselves. They're not really teaching God's people. They're just feeding themselves. They were convinced that they were great teachers, convinced that they are, you know, the the greatest thing since sliced bread. These were the great preachers of the day. And Jude's saying, no, they're not. They're just feeding themselves. They're feeding their own pockets. They're just out for themselves. Just like in Israel's day, right before the exile, so these teachers are just feeding themselves. They're not building up the church. The third image we see there once again in verse 12 is that they are like waterless rain clouds. Now, in Palestine, right, a place known for its desert, a cloud is a signal of hope. You see a cloud coming and you're hopeful that rain is coming. But, but sometimes a cloud will come and the wind will just blow it and rain doesn't come. Well, that's what these teachers were like. These teachers were all talk, right? They were all promise, no fulfillment. They promised many things. They didn't deliver on anything. They were like a waterless cloud. The fourth image, these people were like fruitless trees. Now, I, I, I don't know much about gardening per se, but I do know that a fruit tree is supposed to produce fruit. And he's saying that they're like a a fruit tree that's not producing fruit. Now, especially in the New Testament, um, many people use this imagery of fruitless tree to talk about, to to make a sort of spiritual point. We see Jesus doing it. We see John the Baptist doing it. And and basically, both Jesus and John the Baptist say that, 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 that people are described as fruitless trees because they are spiritually barren. And that's Jude's point here. These teachers, they're spiritually barren. They're not producing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And what's the end? Well, the end of a fruitless tree is to just uproot it. The fifth image in verse 13 is that they're like wild waves of the sea casting foam on their own shame. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever gone to the beach, but, but sometimes you go to the beach and you just assume like, oh, there's going to be those beautiful blue waves. But every once in a while you'll come, I think especially in the morning, and waves will come up and they just leave this foamy, gunky, gross, silty thing. You know what I'm talking about? And you don't even want to dip your toe in it. That's what like these teachers are like. They just pollute everything they touch. They're just contagious. They just, they just kind of uh, pollute other people with their own shame that they might not even, not, 
might not even be thinking is shameful, but they just pollute others by their shame. And then lastly, verse, uh, verse 13, the, the last image uh, that relates to who these people are and the characteristics of these teachers, they're like a wandering star. No, you know, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have GPS. They didn't have compasses in, in that sense. And so when they wanted to get from point A to point B, they used the stars. They were fixed. They were good ways of navigating from one place to another. But a shooting star, a falling star, not reliable. That's what these teachers were like. You can't count on them. They promised a way back home, but they only lead to danger. Now, these, these images, they're warnings to us. Judah's warning these Christian churches to these false teachers and saying, this is what they're like. This is the end of these teachers. These are what, what they're producing. These are why they're dangerous. That They're as dangerous as hidden rocks. They're as selfish as perverted shepherds. They're as useless as a rainless cloud. They're as dead as a barren tree, as dirty as foaming seas, as unreliable as a shooting star. It's pretty vivid language, isn't it? Right? Get an, get an A on a poetry test. It's evocative. It sort of warns through shock. And I think, honestly, that, that sometimes is what we need. Sometimes we need a, a warning through the shock to our senses. And that's what Jude does here. He, he, he warns by shocking these Christians to the true folly of these teachers. They were working behind the scenes. Right? False teachers don't put all their chips on the table. They're subtle, deceptive. They use verbal sleight of hands. They're slippery. I mean, you know, a contemporary example by way of application is, um, I remember I learned this early on in my Christian uh, faith. Um, you know, I became a Christian when I was 20, and I remember just assuming that if a book was at a Christian bookstore, it had to be Christian. It had to be biblically orthodox. Not true. Or maybe even more subtler today, think of music. We just assume that, that if music uses God in their lyrics, or, or if music comes from a Christian label, obviously it must be Christian. It must be orthodox. M- music catechizes when you think about it. That's the purpose of music. It catechizes. It, it shapes us as people. It, it shapes our view of the world. It disciples us. And what music does is, is it lures us by the safety of a beat, and then through the back door can come a message. Just, just think of many of the biggest churches that, that you would deem in your estimation as unorthodox, unbiblical. Just think of those big churches. Almost all of them have big music ministries. Maybe think of Bethel. There's purpose there. There's reason for that. It's a strategy. Music catechizes. It's a vehicle to promote doctrine. For good, we pray we do that here, or for ill. So Jude Jude 
warns. He, he warns by shocking them. And then in verse 13, he, he doesn't just warn. He, he, he warns and then says what the end of these teachers are going to be. He says, they are destined for the gloom of utter darkness. After using these, these, these just profound and, and elaborate images to describe these teachers, right? I don't know if you notice it, but he uses, he uses air and earth and water and sky. He uses creation, the, the four elements of the ancient world, to explain ultimately their destiny. Darkness. Death. The, the judgment here that's pictured by Jude is the judgment that will come at Jesus' return. When you think about it, and if you go back to verse 11, and you think of Cain and Balaam and Korah, their judgment's a little different than how the judgment's talked about in Jude's day. Cain was judged right after he sinned. Same with Balaam, same with Korah. In those examples, judgment followed right after their sin. Woe came quickly. But here... Jude's point is that woe's not going to come as quickly to these teachers. Woe's going to come later. Woe is delayed in Jude's day. Just like it is in our day. I mean, it could be discouraging when you think about maybe people who you deem as false teachers. People who are like, yeah, they're not preaching the gospel. They're not submitting to God's, God's word as authoritative. And you might go, but they're just gaining steam. They just keep having more followers. I mean, books and articles and, and people are criticizing and, and pointing out how they're, they're false and yet they just become more and more credible and their followers increase. And it can be discouraging because we think nothing's happening. Well, Jude would remind us that woe comes ultimately later. There's only one time that I can think of where I've ever pronounced woe on someone. Uh, it was at my last uh, church. There was um, in Corvallis. I was pastoring, and there was a, a cult. There's no way about it. There, there was a cult that called itself Christian, and they were pronouncing that if you didn't get baptized in their particular church building and church, you weren't a Christian. They had the secret sauce. They were the only true church. And any time someone comes announcing that they are the only true church, you, you, you know that, you know, you know they're crazy. You, you know you're, we're talking about cult language. But, but the problem was they were seducing members of the church I was pastoring into thinking, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. And so I just so happened to run into them at Starbucks. And I pronounced woe on this guy. Now, no, I didn't hit him. I was tempted to. But I pronounced a judgment on him for his error. Now, I did it twofold. And I think that this is Jude's point. I did it because I wanted an opportunity for him to repent, to see the error of his way and to say, oh yeah, that's wrong. But also, I wanted an opportunity to say, judgment's coming for you. Maybe not right now, but someday. What you're teaching is dangerous, and the judgment will come. Now, I don't know if this teacher is still there. I don't know if the community is still there. I don't even know if it's growing. 
Maybe they repented. Or maybe they're just awaiting, like these teachers, a judgment to come. There's warning here. But I think there's some comfort here. And the comfort is knowing that that God's going to judge. That God fights against our discouragement by reminding us time and time again that we don't hold the ultimate judgment in our hands. That's not our job. That's God's job. Ultimately, justice will be levied. And it's going to come through Jesus Christ. Lastly, thirdly, the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall regarding the judgment of the unfaithful. Now we see this starting in verse 14. Now, verse 14, as Phil read it, it's a little weird, isn't it? Well, we saw this earlier. Uh, Jude is going to quote a book not in your Bibles. Now, that might make you uncomfortable. Didn't make Jude uncomfortable. Okay? Jude is quoting the, um, he's quoting the book of Enoch to make a point. Okay? Maybe similar to, I might quote, Shakespeare. And so, uh, Jude wants us not to look at the source of this prophecy. He wants us to look at the content of the prophecy. The prophecy. So, so that's, that's what we're going to do. Let, let's look at the, the, the content of this prophecy. Enoch, back in the Old Testament, early on in the Old Testament, he was the seventh from Adam. He was a man who walked with God, if you remember. He, he was a God who just, you know, was taken up by God. Well, Enoch prophesied. He had a prophecy. And the prophecy was that the Lord and his kind of multitude of angels would come and judge the ungodly. Now, I just want to point out two kind of themes by way of repetition that Jude gives us in this prophecy from Enoch. Something, a a word comes up four times in this prophecy. The first word is the word ungodly. You see it? You just read it and it's just ungodly, 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 ungodliness. God's judgment is in reference to moral failure. And it sort of seems that, that, and it's pretty clear that these teachers, I don't think they think that they're ungodly. I mean, to be fair, the word ungodly, it's a pretty intense word, right? If Barna did some like statistical study and asked um, evangelicals in America, are you ungodly? My guess is very few would say, yep, me, ungodly. They might say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but ungodly, that's pretty intense. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that these teachers didn't think themselves as ungodly. They, they were teachers. They were wanting to advance the kingdom. They were traveling from churches to churches. They were the devoted ones. They were sacrificing a lot. And so Jude uses repetition to make his point. No, no, no. They're ungodly. And judgment is going to fall on them. But then also four times the word all shows up in the prophecy. All. Jude's basically saying that he's adamant that no one can hide from God. That the judgment of God is going to be universal. In short, to to shock them one last time, uh, you know, Jude turns and describes these men 
saying that they are in verse 16. And and again, a lot of these uh, descriptions we've seen earlier, but they are grumblers, like Israel was in, in the desert, in the wilderness. They are malcontent. They're discontent. They're following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, and they show favoritism to gain advantage. Now, in all of this, Jude's basically saying that the writing is on the wall. Enoch's prophecy is proof that the writing is on the wall as it relates to these false teachers. Enoch's prophecy is that God's going to judge the ungodly. But, but, but let me ask you this. When was Enoch's prophecy fulfilled? Well, there's actually two answers to that. If you think of Old Testament prophecies, there's um, often a near fulfillment and then a future fulfillment. And that's what we have here. Enoch's prophecy was actually the prophecy about the flood. That God's judgment would come upon the ungodly in Noah's day. That's where the fulfillment of that initially came. But then Enoch is pointing to, and this is how Jude uses it, to an ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns and judges all those who were ungodly. And so you could think of it that the flood, it's a picture, it's terrifying, but it's a terrifying picture of the ultimate judgment to come. And yet, just like in the flood that Enoch was prophesying against, and just like where Jude is prophesying and talking about and connecting the judgment that's coming, which will be future when Jesus returns, there's hope. There's hope that God's people will be protected through judgment. In Enoch's day, God protected through Noah. God protected through judgment. You ever thought of this? God protects through judgment. By way of judgment, God protects his people. He saves through judgment. In Noah's days, he saved all those who sought refuge in God's provision of an ark. All those who turned to God who ran from their ungodliness and sought refuge in that ark, were saved. Nothing's changed. The hope then is the hope now, that God would protect his people from judgment by means of a refuge. Now, these false teachers, if you go back to verse 12, they were like shepherds who only fed themselves. But if you go back to Ezekiel, something really interesting happens. Ezekiel points out that they are, well, only teaching themselves. They're bad shepherds. And he says, in response, God says, I'm going to be your shepherd. They won't teach you, I'll teach you. They won't protect you, I'll protect you. They won't provide for you, I'll provide for you. And ultimately, this comes to a climax when he sends his own son, Jesus Christ, who self-identifies as the good Shepherd. Jesus taught his sheep unlike the teachers in Jude's day. Jesus went after straying sheep unlike the teachers in Jude's day. And ultimately, this shepherd, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for his sheep unlike any of these teachers would have done. God protects his people through judgment. The judgment that was going to come on these false teachers, Jude is saying, 
yeah, but that, that's not going to come to you because you found provision in Jesus Christ. Judgment, it doesn't have to be the final word. There is woe, there is a warning here, and there is the writing on the wall, and yet this is a cautionary tale. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that it's not too late. That God provides a way out of judgment, and he does so through his own son. Cautionary tales are helpful. They're useful. They protect by warning. They help us become wise by pointing out folly. And that's what we have here. A cautionary tale. A cautionary tale to make us wise. Not not, not just by pointing out false teachers and what they were like, but ultimately by reminding us that we will not be the woed ones because of the great twist of Christianity that the faithful one got our woe that we might have the blessing of the faithful one. God protects his people from unfaithful teachers as he warns us and as he reminds us of the judgment that will come. But more than that, God protects us by reminding us that he really is the good shepherd. Those teachers were not, but he is. And he feeds us, he provides for us. That is what this season is all about. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. He has come. And he reminds us as he left that he will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are grateful. We are grateful that, that in this life, even in the midst of the, the warnings that, that, that there's suffering and trials and there are people seeking at times to be deceptive and, and lead us astray. Lord, we know that, that you provide grace and mercy. We know, Lord, that, that you open our eyes to this and that you will protect a remnant, that you will protect us, Lord. But you said you will build your church and the gates of hell cannot overtake her. Lord, we thank you for your promises. And we just pray all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.